All right, so um, I know you've been waiting with bated breath for me to finish this sermon series from four weeks ago. So here is, here is the final uh, sermon in, in the series, What Drives You? And I want you to think about what drives you, and I want you to think about what drives the main character of our story today is what we're going to talk about. So the battle lines were drawn in the sand, and this is probably the most famous battle that you've ever heard of. The Philistines were on one side of the valley, and the Israelites were on the other. Go ahead and put that picture up there. All right, so here's what I want you to see. Philistia is down here. The main cities of Philistia are Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, uh, Libna. The, so the Philistines were bad people, and they did not worship God. They, they were horrible people who constantly... Um, we're in a battle with God's people. Now, over here is, is where, so you see Israel was the northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom, and they're about to have this big battle in Judah, not far from, from where they are. Oh, okay, next picture. I got several pictures here. So here's what I want you to see. So I want you to see how flat this is. This is the area of Philistia. Uh, Philistia. And so it's very flat. These people are known for working with iron. They're known for their shields, their swords, their chariots, their horses. And you would think that somebody that's on flat ground, that would work pretty well there. If you look right here where Judah is going to be, where they're going to have the battle, look how mountainous it is. I want you to see the topography because the, the Israelites were farmers. They weren't really fighters. Now show that next picture if you would. All right, so, so here's what's going on. This is the Israelites' camp on this side. This is the Philistine camp on the other side. Notice that there's this valley in between, right? Okay, now, if you're, if you're a, a fighting nation and you are, are known for all of your, um, your, your instruments of war, go ahead, next picture. So this is, this is David and Goliath. I gave it away. So I just want you to see, first of all, how big Goliath is. Okay, here's what the Philistines were known for. Notice this shield. This shield is, is incredibly big, incredibly strong. He's got a sword here. He's got armor on. This armor probably doesn't do him justice. He probably had more armor. The Bible uh, uh, actually says he has an armor bearer carrying a big shield as well. And notice, notice this is David. And what does David have? A rock. Okay, now, if you are uh, the Philistines, you want people to come down to uh, battle you on the flat plains because you can, you can kill them there. If you're a farmer, you're known for this. This is a plow. How many of you are going to take that to war? I'll beat you with my plow <laughs> next week when I get it going, right? Here's, here's an actual shovel that was discovered from the Roman period. They were farmers. They were, they were not known for their fighting. That's why the Philistines were even still there. So if you're the, if you're the farmers, you want to bring the Philistines with their chariots and their horses and all of this stuff up into the mountainous area because it's going to slow them down and they would be sitting ducks for you to smack with your shovel or something. I don't know. So, so you have to understand what's going on here. Now, in those days, if they didn't want to, to suffer a whole lot of... Um, of uh, losses in battle of, of human life, they would have a contest. And you know this contest. So the, uh, the Philistines choose Goliath. Now, I cannot show you this story without going back to Veggie Tales. My kids grew up on Veggie Tales. And there's one called Dave and the Giant Pickle. And I love it because the pickle is just massive. You know, and, and Dave is this little piece of celery. No, not celery. Asparagus. Asparagus. Because uh, you've been gluing peas to your noggin. Anyway, that's just, if you've seen Veggie Tales, you know that. So what's going to happen is every morning in this video, Goliath comes hopping out he doesn't have legs, so he has to hop. And when he hops, it's like the Jurassic Park, you know, the water in the little mud puddle. It goes boom, boom. So when the big pickle comes out, he's hopping out, and he hops out, and he says, who will fight me? This is a big line. Okay, watch this. Oh, no one to fight. Turn up. They told me that you are the children of God. You are cowards. 
I come back tomorrow. Oh, this is one of my favorite things. So when Caleb was little, he's like three, we would watch this. He would eat Cheerios and watch Veggie Tales, and I had these suckers memorized. And, and so I would say, who will fight me? No one will fight. I come back tomorrow. One day, Caleb was walking around, and, and I said, who will fight me? No one will fight. And he goes, I come back a Mario. He, he combined tomorrow with Mario Kart. I come back a Mario. And it's one of my favorite sayings ever. I come back a Mario. To this day, I can say, who will fight? And they go, oh, dad. <clears throat> well, I tell you this because they have this contest. So this big, massive Goliath comes out and he says, who will fight me? If you beat me, then we will serve you. If, if I beat you, we will, uh, you will serve us, whatever. I'm saying that backwards. So it, to preserve life, they were going to have this big contest. Now, nobody wanted to fight Goliath because the Bible tells us Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall, weighed over 400 pounds. He was the undefeated, undisputed, heavyweight champion of the world. And every time he came out, everybody ran and hid. Okay. Now, enter Jesse. Jesse was a man who had eight sons. The oldest three of these sons were in the farmer army on the front lines about to meet the Philistines. The, their names were Eliab, Shammah, and Abinadab. Those are great boy names. I'm just telling yeah, I'd love to see some of those pop up in our church uh, in, in a while. Now, when, when Caleb was, was going to be born, I loved Joshua and Caleb, but Janie wouldn't let me name him Joshua because she didn't want somebody to call him Josh Washburn. There's too many, sh- sh- you know, Shema Washburn. I guess we couldn't have done Shema either, but you can, you can do those names. Now, Jesse wanted to know what was going on with his three oldest sons, so he calls his youngest son, who's a shepherd. He's not old enough to be in the battle, and he says, hey, run to the front lines, and David's like, front row at the Goliath show? I'm there, dad. So he gives him some stuff. He says, take this to your brothers. He goes running to the front line. He gives it to the attendants, and then he starts walking through camp, and as he's walking through camp, he starts hearing guys say, that that Goliath is the baddest dude I've ever seen. His spear, the tip of his spear weighs 25 pounds. His armor weighs 100 pounds. They start talking about all this stuff, and, and David's like, what dude? And they're going, that dude. And David, okay, so in the first service, I had, I had Brad uh, Anderson here. Brad's 6'6". He feels much taller than that. And his wife, Cassie, is 5'5". And I had them stand up, and I should have taken a picture to show you this because this is what it was like. Okay, so, so it's worse than that. So da- Brad is 6'6", six, six, and his wife is 5'5". Five, five. Add three feet to Brad, and that's what you've got. You've got, you've got a 9-foot, nine 9-inch nine guy telling everybody, I'm going to kill you everybody's hiding and David says I can take him so his oldest brother hears him say this has your elder sibling ever heard you talking stuff and called you out on it no one just mine okay all right I thought so so he says David you're a twerp you're a boy you have a boy's job watching sheep and nobody's watching the sheep. Go do your little boy job and leave the men to the men's job. This is war. Go running home. Now, David just turned his back on his brother and went to talk to somebody else. We'll come back to that. That's great advice, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, I need to introduce you to King Saul. King Saul is six, probably 6'8", six, so I had Brad stand up. He's about the height of, um, of King Saul. Now, King Saul was probably had some, some, um, some posture problems during this time because being 6'8", the Bible says he was taller. He was a head taller than anyone else in the Israelite nation. So if you're just going to pick the biggest guy, Saul should have been the one to fight Goliath. But I think he was going, no, 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 I'm not really 6'8". That's just what I put on my driver's license. I'm 5'8", not back hurt. You know, he's, he's hiding. And then, then he, 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 he has this instance where he hears about this little Hebrew hick. So here's the thing. Instead of going out and doing what he should have done for the, for the nation, He's playing games. You know what game he's playing? He's playing hide and go seek. 
And this little Hebrew boy, 5'5", five, five, maybe 14, maybe 15 years old, shows up and says, I can take the giant. And see, here's the deal. This is what you need to understand about following God's vision. I want you to understand, you need to be driven by something greater than yourself, and it's spiritual vision. Here's what you need to understand. Following God's spiritual vision does not lead you to a playground. It leads you to a battleground every time. So quit playing games. You're in the battle of your life, your spiritual life, and maybe even your physical life. So King Saul brings in this little Hebrew hick, and he says, hey, you're an idiot. You can't, you can't fight him. And, and, and David says, I follow the Lord. And, and this guy, I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear. He'll be just like one of them. And Saul goes, oh, in that case, if you've killed a lion and you've killed a bear, here, let me give you my armor. So, I had to, so there's Brad standing up, six foot six. Can you imagine Brad giving his wife, Cassie, his armor? And her putting it on. Clunk, 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 clunk. I mean, just imagine this. This is what Saul does. He says, put this on and go fight him. And David goes, I, I can't even move. I don't need this stuff. I'll, I'll fight him on my own. So he goes out and he gets probably the distance from a pitcher to a catcher. That's about 60 feet, maybe 90 feet. We don't know. He begins to, to twirl his sling and he throws the rock. And there are actually ballistics tests done on this. That, that the rock was probably traveling somewhere between 200 and 300 feet per second. It was a big rock. And so it, it had the power of a really large bullet when it hit Goliath in the forehead. Goliath falls down, clanging with all his 100 pounds of armor. And the Israelites win this great battle that day. Now, there was something driving David that didn't drive anybody else on the battlefield. Thousands of men on this amphitheater watching this thing go on. There's only one young boy who was driven by something else. And you can talk about courage, you can talk about endurance, you can talk about faithfulness, but I think what drove him was spiritual vision. And I'm going to define that for you. Spiritual vision is the God-given ability to see the unseen, to see past what's going on in the physical world, to see into the spiritual world. It's seeing the transparent through the apparent. And God wants all of us to become great spiritual visionaries. In fact, if we could see the vision God has for us, if we could go to heaven and he was to roll out the, the blueprints for your life, you wouldn't believe it. You'd go, no way, God, that's what you want to do with my life. That's what you want to do with my marriage. That's what you want to do in my dating relationships. No way, God, that's awesome. You want to use me in my career to accomplish that? No way. And God goes, yes way. You, you need to read my scripture more because I always use you to do more for my kingdom. Now, if God has this kind of big grand plan for our life, we need to figure out how to get it, wouldn't you say? Anyone? Okay. So there's some things you need to understand about spiritual visions we're going to talk about. Number one, God's vision comes to us in private, in private, in, in the obscure. <laughs> David spent a lot of time watching stinky, smelly sheep. It was considered the lowest job in that society. You gave it to people who couldn't do anything else. And did you ever see in scripture, do you ever hear of David whining and complaining about the job that he was going to do watching sheep? No, he did not. He didn't say, oh God, you anointed me king. He didn't say, hey God, I'm the man after your own heart. Why do you have me out here in the wilderness? He never did any of that stuff. David knew God. He worshiped God. He prayed to God. He talked to God. He served God. Where did he do all those things? In private out of the limelight. When the lion came and killed and, and attacked the flock, flock and he killed it, who was there to see him kill the lion? No one but God. There was no applause. Woo, David, you're the man. There was no Sports Illustrated 
article. There was no ESPN top 10. Watch this boy kill a lion. No. When anything came to attack the flock, he just did what needed to be done. He killed it, drove it away. He did in private what God wanted to do. So if you want to know how to get God's plan for your life, he's always going to reveal it to you in the obscure, in the private. And then he's going to test you in private. If you fail the test, you will not be promoted publicly. If you pass the test in private, God will promote your vision publicly and you'll do things that you never knew were even possible. See, we believe David was anointed king when he was probably 14 or 15 years old. He didn't become king of Judah. You know, I showed you Israel and Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom. He became king of Judah 15 years later when he was 30. And then seven years after that, so he's 37, he unites the kingdom. They'd been split apart because King Saul, king Saul had done so many things against God. God split the kingdom apart. David brings him back. So when he's 37, 22 years after God said, you're going to be king, David becomes king. Why would God possibly make someone wait 22 years for what he said is going to happen? When I was 19, I became youth minister. Um, actually, I became a music minister. I was a music major. And then a couple months later, they said, hey, we don't have a youth minister. You want to be him? I said, sure. I was 19. Some of the kids in my youth group were 18. That was awkward. And, and so um, I started becoming youth minister. Didn't have a clue. I knew what, I happened, what happened in my youth group, so I just started being youth minister. And, and somewhere in my first ministry, I was at Grace Baptist Church of China Spring, Texas. That is a thriving suburb of Waco, uh, talk about obscure. There was, there, was no, there was one stop sign in the town, and my, it wasn't near my church. So I, people say, where are you, youth minister? Grace Baptist, and say, where's that? Well, you drive this road. And they said, I've been down that road many times. I'm like, there's two buildings on the road. One of them is my church. Okay, obscure. Well, so my pastor one time asked me, he says, hey, will you preach for me? And he, he asked me far enough in advance that I didn't think, and I went, sure. And then as the day came closer, my eyes got bigger, and I thought, what have I done? And so when I preached, now you need to say, okay, so when I first went to this church, I went to try out. This is what the Baptists do. You come in view of a call. It's, it's a tryout. So I go to try out. And, and this, this deacon and his wife had a daughter my age who was also going to Baylor. And so they thought, well, we'll be nice and we'll invite him over to lunch because they thought this is the last time we're going to see this guy. Because she actually told her husband, she said, this guy will never make it in ministry. He's too shy. He's too introverted. People are going to run all over him. And, um, she didn't tell me that till a, a couple of years later. And she goes, huh, well, you proved me wrong. And I said, well, good. Well, when I preached my first sermon, um, several, there were some of my Baylor friends were there. And then several people in the church walked up afterwards. Immediately, they said, you're going to be a pastor someday. I'm like, get thee behind me, Satan. I reject that. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. I started bring, sprinkling blood. No, no. Um, <laughs> I was like, no way, no way. I don't want to be a preacher. I've seen what they do. That sucks. <laughs> 19 years later, I became a preacher. Why would God make someone wait 19 years? In, starting off in this little bitty place that maybe 20 people were there. I had two youth. The first time I had a youth activity. Here's why. A faith that has never been tested is a faith that can never be trusted. Go read the book of Job. You talk about someone who was tested. But here's the thing about Job. By the time God shows up and says, where were you when I created the worlds, when I hung the worlds, when I created all this? By the time all of that happens, Job never again, never again 
was his faith shaken because it had been tested with fire. And God's looking for people who will allow him to test them. But see, we live in this instant world. We want instant marital bliss, instant spiritual maturity. I want to be a millionaire today. I want to run the company today. I want to preach today. I want to be the pastor today. We've had some of that. David didn't try to take the shortcut from the pasture to the palace, but you and I would love shortcuts, right? I love shortcuts when I'm driving. I don't want to face Goliath. I don't want to, I don't want to pay my dues on the hillside. I don't want to get to know God personally. God, that's great for other people, but I want stuff now. You need to bless me now. And God says, or what? Or else I'm out of here, God. I will turn my back on you if you don't give me what I want and if you don't give it to me now. And God says, I have just exposed who you are and you will not have my blessing. Maybe you're in an obscure job and you never expected to be there and you think God can't possibly give, give a flying flip about me. You couldn't be further than wrong. Maybe you're, you're, you're the parent of toddlers and you're thinking, this is not what I thought was going to happen. And you think you need to be somewhere else. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's got you where you are in the obscure and he's hammering his vision into your life. And listen to me. If you remain faithful, if you stay humble, and if you trust the grace of God, that's a bunch of ifs. Let me say them again. If you remain faithful, if you stay humble, and if you trust the grace of God, in his time, he will multiply that little bitty vision and do more than you could ever possibly imagine in your lifetime. Now, the Bible says God opposes the proud. And this week, for whatever reason, a couple of days ago, I was studying, thinking about this. God says, I also expose the proud. God opposes the proud. He exposes the proud in the obscure. But then the Bible says God gives grace to the humble and he lifts them up. He's hammering out his vision. He's looking for men and women who will remain faithful come hell or high water. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I want you to say that loud, faithful with a few things. Jesus said, you've been faithful with a few things and because you have, I'll put you in charge of many things. Can that be said of your life that you're faithful with a few things? Because if not, don't expect the blessing of God. Are you faithful with little things? Your life is a test. God is weeding out those people who just want personal glory, just want personal comfort. They're whining and complaining, and all the time they're whining and complaining. They're missing the opportunity God has put right in front of them in the obscure. They're not paying attention. So if you're in, a, if you're in an obscure place and you're going, God, why am I here? I think you ought to celebrate a little bit today and get on your face and ask God to reveal why you're there and what he's trying to teach you. He'll show you. He's not going to hide from you, but he's not going to give it to someone who's not willing to follow. So you really have to say yes before God even asks you the question of, will you follow me? Second thing you need to know about God's vision. God's vision and uncertainty go together. If you are certain you can handle something in your power, God is not required God, we talked about this a couple years ago in our series, uh, God Never Said That. God never said he wouldn't give you more than you could handle. That's not in the scripture. God always gives you more than you can handle. Why? So that you have to depend on him. If you can do it in your power, God's not necessary and God doesn't want to be in a relationship like that. Now, when you drive at night, let me ask you this. When you drive at night, I hope you turn on your lights, right? I hope you do. Popo needs to pull you over fast if you don't. But you turn on your lights. Were your lights designed to light up the entire city of Palestine? 
No. They're, they're designed to light up right in front of your car. So if you want to see just a little bit further down the road than what your lights are lighting up, what do you have to do? Oh, wow, look at that. I didn't see that. If you stay back here, you don't see it. That's the way it is with God's will. God reveals through his word. Ah, there it is. That's why so many of us are not on God's path. We don't know God's word. God reveals his path. He says, here's the path. And he doesn't tell you a hundred steps down the path. He says, there it is. Take step one. Well, what's step two, God? I don't know. Take step two. And here's the thing. And this is, this is where I am today. I'm telling you today, this is where I am. When you don't know God's will for your life, you go back to the last thing God told you. You know for sure God told you. And you do that until God reveals the next step. So I'm telling you right now, I'm right here today because this is what God called me to do. I've gone back to the basics. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to keep doing this as long as I have breath in this body. I'm going to keep preaching God's word come hell or high water until God gives me the next step. God says, this is where I want you to take your family. Come hell or high water, you got to take your family here. This is where I want you to take your church. It doesn't matter how much it hurts. This is where I want you to take your company. And if you're going to be faithful to God, don't you stop. Don't you put in neutral. Don't you turn around and go the other way. You do what God has called you to do. So that someday he could say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He never said it would be easy. He never said you'd be popular for it. How popular was Jesus when he was hanging on the cross bleeding for you? How popular was Jesus when he was laid in the tomb and everybody thought he was over? Doesn't have anything to do with popularity. It's obedience and faithfulness. Do you think David knew when he was tending sheep that he was going to be king someday? Not a chance. Do you think that David knew when he's out there tending sheep that he would be the best friend of King Saul's son, Jonathan? No. Do you think David knew that he was going to be the harp player? Harp, H-A-R-P, for the king? Do you think that he knew he was going to fight a battle against Goliath in front of thousands and thousands of people? Not when he was in that little obscure place. No, he did not. He did his job. He did it well. And God promoted him. David, David didn't know any of that stuff. His life was uncertain, and if you're uncertain, then that's where God has you where he wants you to be. Everything about new life has been uncertain. Janie and I made the decision on a, on a Sunday night that we were going to start this church, and we didn't have a place to go. We, didn't have a, we weren't incorporated. We couldn't take an offering for two months. We didn't even know how to do that. We, we weren't incorporated, so it was illegal for us to take an offering. So on a Sunday night at Lower Lake, Janie says, let's, dry, let's do this. I don't want to come back 20 years. We're 16 years in. She said, I don't want to come back 20 years and said, what would have happened if we had tried this? So on Tuesday, we go to this meeting and this dude says, sure, you can meet in my building for free. So here's, the, here's a picture of our very first meeting of New Life. 
how cool is that? Look at that tile floor. This was Tammy's 57 Heaven. It's now Verizon, right? Okay. So look how cool. They even had electric guitars up there. There's a preacher with hair, kind of. Look at this. Okay, here's Caleb on the back row. Here's Rachel. And look at, look at Hannah jacking with her sister. That's never happened since. 22 people came that first night. And nobody in the church now was there except my family. Ryan Pence, he was in the first service. Ryan came a couple of months later. And then Keith and Heather actually came because of Ryan and, and Mandy. But because we were meeting in a church that, go back, go back, go back, go back. Because we were meeting in a church like this, because we were meeting on a Saturday night, they said, we think they're a cult, right? Uh, Keith and Heather. We're not coming back. And so they didn't come back for months. And then uh, we kept praying. And, and now Keith and Heather besides the pences, they, they've been here longer than anybody else in the church. They thought we were a cult. I think that's funny. <laughs> we got to meet there rent-free for six months. And then the place sold, and we went to the old First Baptist building, and we were on the third floor, and we're like, will anybody climb the stairs? Will anybody find us? Because we're in that, you know, the education building back there. Um, how do we renovate? We had no money. How do we renovate this place? And let me tell you what happened. For 10 days, we tell the church. I stood up on the, <laughs> in our little, we went to a computer shop first, and then we went down there. So we're in this little computer shop, and it's, it maybe is as big as this stage is where we're meeting. So 14 people there. I said, let's go pray, and let's figure out if we're supposed to move to the old First Baptist building. We're going to pray for 10 days. We're going to have a meeting. And, and here's the deal. If you think we're not supposed to move, you tell us. And if you don't think we're supposed to move, you, if you think we're supposed to tell us, if you don't think you, we're supposed to tell us, but after that time, if we're in agreement, we're moving. Okay. So 10 days, we come back, we have this meeting, everybody go around, everybody, we're supposed to move. We're supposed to move. We're supposed to move. We, we go down there and we renovate. We spent, you know, several thousand dollars renovating that building so we could have the worship center on the third floor. There was a children's area on the second floor nursery. And then there was children's area on the first floor and we were hidden and it was, it was awesome. And, uh, and very few people found us for a couple of years. Um, you know, when people started saying we weren't supposed to move into that building a year and a half after we moved into that building, If you're supposedly praying and you're, you're, you're agreeing that we're supposed to do something, and a year and a half later you go, oh, no, I knew back then we weren't. Shut your fat mouth. <laughs> you have enough courage to say up front, if you're not feeling it, you should have said it then. You don't come a year and a half later and go, I knew this whole time we weren't supposed to be. No, you did not. Shut up. <laughs> go whine somewhere else. I've got several suggestions of church. No, no, sorry. I, I don't want to. Why don't you leave all the churches alone if that's who you are? Because nobody needs that. Eventually, in October of 2007, we bought this place. $150,000 for this in the house and 2.1 acres. And we spent $100,000. So we had $250,000 into this. And, and we renovated, we put up 400 sheets of sheetrock and built all the walls and, and did floors and all of that stuff. And, um, and we had our first service in May of 2008. And before long, we, couldn't, we didn't have enough parking. People would drive into our parking lot and couldn't find a parking place, they would leave. We would actually have folks out there going, hey, man, we've 10, 10 people didn't, show, didn't stay today because there wasn't a place to park. And then, then we had this, this, 
this 2.5 acres next to us that's kind of down the hill where the pond is. Um, $45,000 to buy that acreage, and, and it never even went on the market. They came to us and said, would you buy it? We raised $45,000. Actually, we raised almost $90,000 in one day. People said that couldn't happen. We, you can't do that. Your church doesn't have that kind of money. You're in debt. You can't do that. We paid cash for that. Um, we got out of debt, and then a couple of years ago, this 38 acres back here came up for sale, and, and people were like, dude, you don't have money. You can't, why, why are you going to buy this 38 acres? And we needed $69,000 to buy 38 acres, and so we started putting, we'd been saving money, so we started taking money out of this account and this account, and we still needed like $21,000 in order to get uh, this land, and we needed it on one day. So I, to, I told the church, and, and Ryan Pence has told me this several times, he told me this after. He said, uh, dude, I thought you were insane when you said we needed $21,000 in order to buy this land, you know, to add to everything else we already had. He said, I thought there's no way. And so we took up the offering. We were a little bit short, and I was, I was really disappointed. And so we kept praying, and, and then I got a couple of phone calls, and they said, hey, did you get my check? And I'm like, no. And they said, be looking for it. So I went to the post office box the next day. So by noon the next day, we had like $50 more. It was 21000 something and change. We had like 50 bucks more than that. And I'm just, I'm praising. I'm doing my happy dance there in the, in the, post, in the post office. And, and I couldn't wait to tell people. Ryan said, I thought you were nuts. He told me later, I thought you were nuts. He said, but I thought you were nuts when we bought that land. I thought you were nuts. He said, I've been thinking you're nuts for years. And God keeps showing up. And so we give him the glory for that. Now, let me tell you something. If anybody at New Life tells you they knew all of those steps were going to happen, they're a big fat liar. And we should go baptize him in the middle of winter in this muddy pond just for fun. <laughs> um, just to be mean. We've had uncertainty every step of the way, and, and this is the deal. Uncertainty in God's vision is he has you right where he wants you because you have to depend on him. Now, I want to give you a word of caution. Well, let me say this first. You'll know God's vision for your life, and you get it always through the Holy Spirit by the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church. God's not going to contradict his word. He's going to teach you if you'll allow him to. But every time you get a glimpse of God's vision in, in, in the little obscure, watch out for vision vandals. Vision vandals. Every time you get a glimpse of God's vision, a vision vandal will show up and try to steal your vision. What's a vision vandal? Well, let's see what David's brother did, Eliab. In 1 Samuel. But when David, David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking like that, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What, are you, what about the sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know what a cocky brat you are. You just want to see the fight. Does that sound like an older brother to you? Now, here's the deal. You good-for-nothing brat, get out of here. David didn't argue with Eliab. He turned and talked to someone else. This is, this is great advice for you. When you get God's vision, someone's going to try to steal it. That's why Jesus said this in, in John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. It's what vision vandals do. They want to kill, steal, and destroy your vision, the vision that God has given you for your great and incredible life. And in fact, I read this just this week, this quote. Put it up there if you would, Bobby. Adolf Hitler, I don't want to glorify Hitler in any way, but I want to tell you Hitler was a mouthpiece for Satan. Then he's a mouthpiece for Satan today. This is Satan's plan right here. Mental confusion, contradiction of feeling, indecisiveness, panic. These are our weapons, the Nazis said. He took the weapons from the enemy, Satan. Vision vandals want to, want to cause panic in your life because then you take your eyes off of God and you put them on circumstances, you put them on people. And they will steal and destroy what God wants to do in your life. Every time. So you don't, you don't 
talk to vision vandals. You, you, don't, you don't try to convince Eliab's vision vandals. You're not rude. You're not arrogant. You just turn to someone else. See, I've spent a lot of time trying to convince Eliab's of this is the vision God has for this church. I spent a lot of time arguing and pulling out scripture. I'm just not going to do that anymore. I can't change an Eliab. Only God can. I know what God has called me to do. So don't spend precious time trying to convince them. Just lovingly turn from them and move on with the movers. Here's another thing you can count on when you get God's vision. God's vision comes with God's resources. Where God guides, he provides. That means God will never call you to do something that he won't also provide the resources necessary to complete the task, like going on a mission trip. Every year, I can't afford that. Well, then God didn't call you. I can't afford it every year. God provides. If David had not been close to God, he would have tried to put on Saul's armor and go into battle, but that's not what he needed. He wouldn't have understood how to use the sling in his hand to accomplish God's purpose because what he did brought glory to God. Look what happens. He would have, he would have fallen for Saul's plan if he wasn't near God. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. David put it on. He said, I can hardly move, he exclaimed, and then he took them off. So here's, here's what I want you to see. I, I should have put this on your listening guide. We did put it up here. Great spiritual visionaries are also great eliminators. David took off that armor because it's not what he needed. Man said, you need, you need physical armor. He needed spiritual armor. See, there's a difference in a good idea and a God idea. A good idea is something you can do in your power. A God idea is something you can't possibly do in your power. So he eliminated what he didn't need. Spiritual vision is not just measured by what you do. It's also measured by what you don't do. Spiritual vision is not just measured by who you hang out with. It's also measured by who you do not hang out with. If you are not regularly eliminating things from your life, then your life will be too cluttered when God wants you to act. And I think this is the American church right here. Our lives are too cluttered. So every time God calls us to act, we can't possibly do it because I got so many other things that are totally insignificant when you compare them to eternity. But I'm going to spend my time doing that instead of doing what you want me to do, God. So you got to be like David and say, I can't live like this. I can't walk like this. Thanks, Saul, but no thanks. Because what he needed was spiritual armor. He didn't even know about Ephesians 6.11, but you do. Ephesians 6.11 says this, put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. God wants you to stand. Your enemy wants you to fall. All right, so the, the armor of God, you put on the, the, the helmet of salvation to guard your mind. You put on the breastplate of righteousness to guard your vital organs. You have the belt of truth. You have your feet shod with the gospel of peace, the good news of Jesus Christ that you're supposed to take everywhere. You have the sword of the spirit. You have the shield of faith. And the Bible says when you put all that on, you're supposed to stand firm. There's only two things that are acceptable for a warrior of God to be doing. You know what they are? Number one is standing firm. Number two is getting back up. No such thing as retreat in the kingdom of God. We, serve, we fight an enemy that's, that's bigger than us, that's stronger than us, not stronger than our God, but stronger than us. He may knock us down. So my only options are to put on the full armor of God, stand firm, or when I'm knocked down, get my butt back up and stand firm. There's no sitting on the sidelines. There's no retreat. And by the way, put back up there, uh, 611, Ephesians 611, if you would. Who's supposed to put it on? You are. God doesn't dress you. Your parents don't dress you. Your spouse doesn't dress you. You put on the full armor of God and then you stand. And God will make a difference. Now, in this battle, David and Goliath, 
I got a question for you. In that battle, does the strongest man win? Oh, y'all are so wrong. The strongest man is not the one who lifts the most weight. He's the one with the most faith. So let me ask you again. In this battle between David and Goliath, did the strongest man win? Yes, he did. The one with the most faith won. Did he have faith in his armor bearer? Faith in his armor bearer? No. Faith in his sword? Did he have faith in his rock? He had faith in God. The one with the most faith won. See, King Saul should have known this, but he forgot. Here's how King Saul should have known it. Every king was commanded by God to write out the book of Deuteronomy, personally write out his own book of Deuteronomy, copy it, and then he was supposed to read it and study it every day. And had King Saul done this, look what he would have found in in Deuteronomy 20, verses 3 and 4. Hear Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight against your enemies to give you victory. Um, when we were, we were doing some, some uh, pistol training yesterday, our security team was, and, and we had this one little scenario where we had to walk and shoot. And, and uh, so everybody's watching you, and there's, you know, there's pressure and there's trash talk going on. And so I get up, and I do mine, and, and, I, and I take this shot, and, and, and I, there's a little pie plate, and there's this little dot in the middle, and I darn near you know, dotted the little thing. Now, <laughs> Travis goes, dang, Doug must have been praying between those shots, you know, because that was lucky or whatever. God, God directed, and I said, okay, I want you to pay attention to this verse I'm going to read tomorrow in church. Because here's the deal. God forbid that I should ever have to draw my weapon in this church. But you all saw what happened in Pittsburgh yesterday, right? It's the reason we're training. The reason we have a team is because we want to prevent that. God forbid that I should ever have to draw my weapon. But if I do, I'm praying this verse. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid for that physical battle. For the Lord my God is the one who will fight for me. I'm, I'm going to trust if I ever have to pull my weapon in this church to defend your life, defend my life. I'm going to be praying that God will aim that bullet. We don't want to have to do it. But the people on the team, will, we will do it to protect you. But we're going to trust God to protect us. Let me tell you one more thing. I want you to know about spiritual vision. God's vision is contagious. It's kind of like the flu, but in the good way. I want you to see this. 1 Samuel 17, 52. The men of Israel and Judah shouted and chased the Philistines all the way to the entrance of the city of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Before David got there, Was anybody coming out of their tents going, yes, we're going to battle Goliath? No. There was no shouting. There was no confidence. It took a little boy knocking down a big giant. And then everybody says, ah, they go running and they have this incredible victory. And by the way, so when David knocks Goliath down, right, little five foot five, you know, teenage boy, he knocks Goliath down. He takes his sword and cuts off his head. And then the Israelites are like, yes, we win. But you think about the little boy, he, he wasn't strong. I don't think he got his head. I think the, the, the sword was so big that he, he, he hit him and didn't go all the way through. And he had to saw him down. <laughs> right? 
And because he had a vision of a God who was bigger than this enemy named Goliath, the entire nation all of a sudden rose up with courage and followed that vision. Spiritual vision is contagious. But you have to put on the armor and you've got to stand firm. Saul looked at Goliath and said, oh, he's too big. David looked at God and said, in my God's eyes, Goliath is an ant and he's about to squish him. Who are you going to be like? You going to be like Saul who had posture problems? Or, or like the, the young boy who said, my God is so big, so strong, so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. I got to teach you that song. So it's a kid song. I want you to think about this. <clears throat> All right, it goes like this. There's, there's motions. My God is so big. So strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. All right, this, you're going to learn this. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Y'all are not very good. <laughs> she said, stand up. Just a second. We'll stand up in a second. All right. So we do it twice, so we've got to repeat that. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Thank you. <laughs> Dude. Okay. So, so then there's the, this little part, and it goes, the mountains are his. Do that. The mountains are his. And then we're going to do valleys. The valleys are his. And then it goes, the stars are his handiwork too. All right, so let's do that again. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. You read the first line. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. There's something you walked in here today, you said it's impossible. You said there's no way in this world that this can succeed. My God is so big, so strong, so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, I, I'm so sorry when I fail you. I know like a heavenly, like a perfect father, you, you love me even when I mess up. And I thank you for reminding me through a little boy named David that there's nothing my God cannot do. God, what, what this congregation needs, what this, the surrounding area needs is the hope of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. God, help us to take your word seriously. Help us to, to stand firm. And when we get knocked down, help us to get back up as quickly as possible. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.